our initial goal is to see 32,689 people transformed by God's grace. Now, when I first gave that number, I don't mind telling you there were a few people that said, Pastor, what are the odds that 100% of our community within a 10-mile radius, what are the odds that every single one of them can be transformed by the power and the grace of God? Well, I go to Matthew chapter 19, verse 23, where Jesus said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Amen? Now, what I think Jesus was saying here in this passage of Scripture is that in and of ourselves, we really can't accomplish much of anything. But with God, all things are possible. So everything that I do, I want to do it with God. Because with God, nothing. Do you hear me? This is not just something that I made up. This is the inspired word of God that says nothing is impossible. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about defying the odds. Now, that is a phrase that is coined to describe somebody who accomplished something even though others had deemed it impossible. Matter of fact, there are some of us sitting here in this room today. We wouldn't be here today if we had not defied the odds. Just the, the thought or, or just the fact that we are here this morning is testimony to the fact that the odds can be defied. Now, what I want to do this morning, and I'll try to be as brief and as quick as I can in doing this, but what I want to do today is I want to just kind of take you through the Bible, first of all, and I want to just show you some people who have defied the odds in their life. And, and I want to begin in 2 Samuel chapter 23, or 1 Samuel chapter 23. And in that passage of Scripture, and we'll get to it here in just a moment, but we read about two groups of men. They're called David's mighty men. And there are two groups of David's mighty men. There are the three, and then there are the 30. When we look at the three, David's mighty men, the greatest of those three, now get this name, was a guy by the name of Joseph. Basabeth. There's your name for your child. <laughs> Josheb Basabeth. And it says that Josheb Basabeth was the greatest of David's three mighty men. And all he did, the Bible said, was raise his spear against 800 men and killed every single one of them in one encounter. Wow, now I know why he's got such a big name, because he did some big stuff. There's another of David's mighty men, a guy by the name of Eleazar. And Eleazar and David, as they were preparing to go to battle against the Philistines, Eleazar and David began to taunt the Philistines. 
The rest of the Israelite army was so terrified at the reaction of the Philistines that they fled and left Eleazar and David there by themselves to fight all of these Philistines. And the Bible tells us that Eleazar fought those Philistines for so long that his hand became tired and his hand froze to his sword. That's Eleazar. So you have Josheb Basabeth, you have Eleazar, and then the third of the three of David's mighty men was a guy by the name of Shammah. Shammah had inherited a piece of land. He had inherited a pea patch, a lentil field. The Philistines came together thinking that they were going to take Shammah's inheritance away from him. But I love what the Bible says about this mighty man of David. It says that he stood in the middle of that pea patch and killed every single one of those Philistines who tried to take his inheritance away from him. And then here's the key. That day, God brought about a great victory, which tells me that it wasn't just these men alone who did mighty exploits. But it was these men with the help of God. And God gave them great victory. Well, then we see that David also had another group of mighty men. That was the 30. And the leader of the 30 was a guy, and this is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. Maybe you've heard about him, maybe you haven't. If you've not heard his name, then maybe you've heard about what he did. But his name is Beniah. And the Bible tells us that Beniah was the son of Jehoiada, a valiant fighter from Kabzeel. Now, Beniah is the leader of David's 30 mighty men. He's the son of Jehoiada, a valiant fighter from Kabzeel. And notice what it says, he performed great exploits. Wouldn't that be great if you had that on your tombstone when you died? That they could actually put that there. He performed or she performed great exploits. What kind of exploits did Benaiah perform? Well, as we read on, it says, first of all, he struck down Moab's two mightiest men. Now listen, it's important that you read that correctly. It doesn't say that he struck down two of Moab's mightiest men. It says he struck down Moab's two mightiest men. The mightiest men that Moab had, he struck them down. Now, any way you look at it, this is two to one odds. But God gave Benaiah victory over Moab's two mightiest warriors. And then this next thing that he did, Ridiculous, ridiculous. I don't know of any other human being that would even attempt to do this, but it says he also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. It doesn't say he fell into the pit accidentally. No, it says he purposefully went into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. Now, we don't know what had been going on with this lion. Maybe this lion had been killing their livestock. Maybe this lion had been wreaking havoc on their community. We don't know. Most Bible scholars and commentators believe 
that he didn't just happen upon the lion, but that he actually chased the lion into the pit. Listen, normal people don't chase lions. Lions chase people. But he chases this lion into a pit on a snowy day. Look at this. The worst of conditions on a snowy day, the worst of places in a pit, and the worst of enemies, a lion. And you would have to admit that in this fight, the lion would have all the advantages. I mean, the lion here, no doubt, would have meteorological advantages because it says that it was on a snowy, slippery day, which means that the lion's footing would have been much more firm than Benaiah's footing would have been. But not only were there meteorological advantages to the lion, there was also topographical advantages to the lion because he's got home field advantage. He's on his own turf. He's comfortable in his surroundings. But then there would also be physical advantages. Let's face it, the lion is bigger than Benaiah. The lion is faster than Benaiah. Did you know that a lion can run 100 yards in less than four seconds? Did you know that the jaws of a lion are so powerful that they can crush the skull of a buffalo? Did you know that in one single bound, a lion can leap 30 feet? And what does Benaiah do with the odds stacked against him? Oh, all he does is he goes down into a pit on a snowy day. And what does he do? He kills the lion. The Bible leaves out any kind of information about any weapon that he might have had. Leaves out any information about what he may would have had to have defended himself. But he goes down into a pit on a snowy day and kills a lion. And then notice the third thing that the Bible tells us. It says that he also struck down a huge. Notice the Bible doesn't just say big. It says he struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand and all that Benaiah had in his hand was a club. But notice what this mighty man did. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. This is a bad dude we're talking about here this morning. And notice what happens. It says, such were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, that David put him in charge of his bodyguard. I bet you he did put him in charge of his bodyguard. That's the kind of guy we all want to be heading up our security team, isn't it? A guy who can defeat Moab's two mightiest warriors. He'll go into a pit on a snowy day and kill a lion and then snatches a spear from a guy that's a foot and a half inch taller than him, has a 12 to 15 inch further reach than him. But what does he do? He snatches his spear away from him and kills him with his own spear. And you think this morning that the odds are stacked against you. Where do you think these men called David's mighty men, where do you think they got this kind of a defiant spirit? And when I say defiant, I don't mean in a negative kind of way. I mean people that others would look at and think those exploits are next to impossible 
they don't even think twice about running to the battle. Where do you think they got this kind of spirit? Well, let's not forget whose mighty men they were. They were David's mighty men. You think they had been hanging out with David? I do. Why? Because David was a lion killer as well. David was a killer of bears as well. I mean, when he was just a little teenage shepherd boy out in his father's pasture, a lion and a bear both came to get one of his father's sheep. And he said, I chased the lion and the bear. Notice another lion chaser. He said, I chased them down, and when they turned on me, get this, he said, I grabbed them by their hair, and I struck them, and I killed them. Mm. And these are his mighty men that we're talking about. But perhaps David's greatest challenge came early in his life when he stood toe-to-toe with a Philistine giant by the name of Goliath. You pretty much know the story. David's dad sends him down to the valley of Elah where the Philistines and the Israelites are about to go to battle. On one hill on one side of the valley is the Israelites. On a hill on the other side of the valley are the Philistines. And the Philistines, the Bible tells us that the giant of the Philistines or the champion of the Philistines was a giant by the name of Goliath. And every day for 40 days, this giant would come out into that valley and he would trash talk the army of Israel, defying them and in the process defying their God. And every time Goliath would come out and trash talk, the Israelite army that had advanced a little ways would turn and run back to a place of safety and refuge. David shows up in the valley of Elah with some bread and cheese for his brothers. And while he's there, Goliath comes out as he had done every day previous to this, and he begins trash-talking the Israelites. And David wasn't going to have any of that. He volunteers. Notice, not he was allowed, not he was forced, not he was made. He volunteers to go out and fight Goliath. And what does Saul the king do? He tries to put his armor on David. And David didn't feel comfortable with that. He's like, I can't go out there and fight this battle with all this stuff on me. So all he had as a weapon is he had a sling and five rocks. Now think about who he's about to go fight. A nine and a half foot tall giant. Just Goliath's armor weighed 125 pounds. The head on his spear was 15 pounds. And then he had another soldier that would walk in front of him carrying his shield, a shield that looked like a hood off of a 1972 Ford LTD station wagon. (laughs) And that's his armor. And David is going out to fight this giant with that kind of armor and with those kinds of weapons. And here's what the Bible tells us. It said, then David said to the Philistine, he said, you come to me with a sword. You see, because 
Goliath had already been trash-talking David. He said, I can't believe they would send a boy out here to fight me. I'm going to tear you to pieces. I'm going to feed your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. And David looked at him and said, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But he said, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. The God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. Now notice what he does not say. He does not say you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin and I come to you with a slingshot and five rocks. Why? Because he knew that wasn't his weapon. He knew that his weapon was God. And with God, all things are possible to them that believe. And, and he goes on, and it says, he said, he said to this giant, he said, this day, this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you, and I will take your head from you. This has got to be more than just a tactic of intimidation here. David's got to know this boy is going to fight back. All right? You know, in high school, you might have been able to get the bully to back down by intimidating him with your words, but not going to be the case here. David knows he's going to have to be able to back up these words with some fight. And he said, this day, the Lord is going to deliver you into my hand. I will strike you. And today, I will take your head from you. And this day, he said, I, all of the assembly is going to know the Lord does not save with sword and spear. And the battle is the Lord's, and he is going to give you into our hands. It sounds to me like David has a proper perspective of who his God is. Listen, when the odds are stacked against you, one thing we're going to find out about you, we're going to find out just how big your God is. Because if you have a proper perspective of God, a proper perspective of God is the difference between a lion chaser and a scaredy cat. Amen? And David has a proper perspective of who God is. And he goes on and says, So it was that when the Philistines arose and came and drew near to meet David. I love this. David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Don't you know that he knows I'm not running out there on that battlefield by myself. God is with me. And if God is with me, I'm not going to retreat. I'm not going to run the opposite direction. Maybe there's an element of surprise here. I don't know. But he hurries and he runs toward the army to meet Goliath. You see, the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9 about God. This is why David would hurry toward Goliath. This is why Josheb, Basabeth, and Eleazar, and Shammah, and Benaiah were the kind of men that they were because they had a proper perspective of who God was. And Isaiah reminds us of this in Isaiah 55, 8, and 9, the words that God himself spoke about himself. He said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. He said, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now notice what God says here. He says that 
my ways are higher than your ways. He says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Well, it caused me to begin to ask the question, how high are the heavens from the earth? And we know that if we can travel at the speed of light, which is 196 or 186,000 miles per second, that we can travel the distance between the earth and the sun in about eight minutes. 196,000 miles that we can travel at 183,000 miles or at 100, 183,000 miles per second at the, at, at the speed of light. That we can be from the earth to the sun in about eight minutes. That means when you walk out of this building here today, the sunlight that you feel is only eight minutes old. But astrologers or astronomists, they have spied galaxies that are 12.3 billion light years away from the earth. That means that traveling at the speed of light, it would still take us 12.3 billion years to reach the furthest universe from the earth. What does that tell us? That tells us that on our best day, when we are thinking our best thoughts about God, that we still fall 12.3 billion years short of just how great God really is. Because if you have a proper perspective, ladies and gentlemen, of who God is, then you will know that never are the odds stacked against you. Because with God, all things are possible. You see, when you have a proper perspective of God and who God is, it'll cause you to believe for ridiculous things, and it'll cause you to pray some ridiculous prayers. Kind of like 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, when the prophet Elisha has started a school for the prophets and they've outgrown the place where they were meeting. And so they decide they're going to go down to the river and they're going to get some wood and they're going to build a bigger place where he can teach these young prophets. And the Bible tells us that when they went down to the river to chop down woods, it said this, when they arrived at the Jordan, they began cutting down trees. But as one of them was chopping, his ax head fell into the river, and he said, oh my Lord, it was a borrowed ax. You see, the only thing this young prophet is thinking about, because he doesn't have proper perspective yet of just how big his God is and what his God can do, all he's concerned about is I've lost something that I can't replace. I've lost something that I can't afford to purchase. But there happened to be a prophet by the name of Elisha who had proper perspective of who God is. And when you have a proper perspective of who God is, like I said, you begin to believe ridiculous things. And you begin to pray ridiculous prayers. And so here's what Elisha began to think. I serve a great big God. And even though the odds of an iron axe head floating are pretty much zero, 
I know that God can defy the law of gravity and that God can cause an axe head to float. And so he looks at this young prophet and he says to him, where did it fall? Most of us would not even ask that question. We would just consider that the axe head is gone. But the man of God, knowing how big his God is and knowing just what his God can do, said, where did it fall? The man of God asked. And when he showed him the place, Elisha cut a stick and threw it into the water. Then the axe head rose to the surface and floated with God. All things are possible. Maybe you feel like the odds are stacked against you this morning. But maybe it's just because you don't have a proper perspective of who God is. You see, I know who God is. I've seen what God has done in the past. I know what God wants to continue to do in the future. And that's why I'm not one bit intimidated to put a number like 32,689 people in front of you. And the odds may be really, really low that it can happen. And with just us, that is the possibility. But with God, all things are possible. Hallelujah. Yes, he can do it. I know he can do it. I believe he can do it. It may sound ridiculous, but when you truly know who he is and how big he is, you don't You don't cower from asking for big, ridiculous things from God. 